Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne and today we're going to talk about developer tools. So there's a lot of third-party tools out there that often make developing in FileMaker more efficient. And I say often because not every tool is for every developer. Each developer has his or her favorites. But what we can maybe do today is reveal maybe a couple you don't know about, or maybe you haven't used any developer tools. Who knows? But we also, even if you use a tool that we're talking about, we might reveal a way that you haven't tried using it. It might be beneficial for you. And today we'll be joined by the always knowledgeable Mark La Rochelle from Productive Computing. And uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Mark? Hey, everybody. This is Mark from Productive Computing. Great to be on the podcast. So let's start off with some of the tools built into FileMaker and talk about their benefits. We'll get to the third-party tools, but let's talk about what's inside FileMaker because some people just don't know they're there. They're important tools and they're handy. They don't make it possible to develop. They just make it easier. So let's talk about those, understand some of those things. And the first one I'd like to talk about is the data viewer. Now, there's two sections to the data viewer, right? So one side's for uh, for putting in your calculations, writing them. The other side's for using the script debugger. Um, I, I love the right, the right side. You know, I, I I kind of think of first thing that flashes into my side when I have two sides of things is is uh, is that uh, frosted mini wheat commercial. You got the you got the frosting side and you got the wheat side. Both are good. Uh, we're going to talk about the frosting side first here, uh, and that's uh, you know one of the things I love to do with that right side where you can type in your own formulas is save myself a lot of time. In other words, if I'm writing a calculation that's going to be inside of managed databases, a calculation field, I don't want to go ahead and type it into managed database, exit, see if it's working, go back in, try to make some tweaks, come back out. If I'm in the data viewer, it's so much faster. I can, it's, a, it's a much easier process to develop that. It's even easier with scripting because you can program that formula, check it out on some records, move around in the database and see what the results are. And when you finally got it right, you can copy and paste in your script. And that way you don't have to run that entire script to make use of that calculation. You don't have to see if it works or not. You don't have to run. It might do a hundred other things besides that calculation. You want to debug it before you get into the script if possible. And that data viewer section is just great. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll, I'll agree with all of that. Especially when you're doing the um, execute SQL type or the select statements and anything like that is really tough to construct to begin with, really tough to do it within a script environment because then you have to set a field or set a dialog box or set a variable in order to see the results. But when you have the data viewer, especially with the option that says automatically evaluate, which is the default option. Um, then you can get the results on the fly as you're building the, the calc. So yeah, I use the that expression editor or that watch screen or whatever you want to call it, customizable data viewer input evaluation dialog box uh, all the time for constructing complex calcs or those SQL statements like I mentioned. Yeah, and I often forget about it and I start doing it inside the script and then realize, oh, yeah, I should do this in data viewer because I'm not going it, to, it's not like I'm doing a simple case statement. I'm doing something more complex. I, I sometimes have to for, remember to move from script maker. I've called it script maker. I'll do that all the time, all day. Script workspace. I have to move back into the data viewer to, to complete it. 
Right. And it's important to know, as we talk about these built-in FileMaker tools, one of the things, especially for new developers, that they uh, often miss and kick themselves over and spend a lot of time wasting time is that the advanced tools under the preferences of FileMaker is something that is not selected by default when you first install FileMaker Pro Advanced. So you have to select that, quit FileMaker, and open it up again to get some of the tools we're talking about here. Yeah, it's important to note because in previous versions of FileMaker, I forget when they put this in, was it 17? They put they combined FileMaker Advanced and FileMaker Pro, and you have to go into preferences to turn that option on. Do you remember? Um, I'm thinking it was 16 or 17, but I don't recall for sure. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was 17. That makes sense because it, it was recent, but uh, it's really not that important if you don't, you know, well, I guess it is important because it's been, but, but if you're on the current version of FileMaker, you won't have to worry about it. Um, you'll know exactly where you go into preferences. You'll see that option. You quit FileMaker, like Mark said, launch it again, and you'll have all those tools available to you. Uh, the ones we're talking about, the data viewer, the script debugger, and I think that's it. Um, well, I'm sorry, the developer utilities. I don't want to leave those out, so. Yes. So the other advantage of the data viewer is, uh, and I don't know if you guys do this as well, but what I find myself doing is I'll put a few predefined things that I find very helpful, like current found count or um, current privilege set. And some of those things that you always need to pay attention to and have in my watch window almost all the time, especially the privilege set. When you're working with security, you want to know what privilege set you're working with and how it, how the database sees itself and the found count, uh, other things that might be important to you, um, maybe the current ID, but although that depends on the name of the file and how you've named it. But those are the basic things that I find myself doing over and over again in that watch window. Yeah, a couple I put in there are they're really important for me, and I just I seem to type them every time I start and start a new project. Is the window size, the window width, and the window mm-hmm. height because it's very important for me to talk to my clients and find out, okay, let's go ahead to all your computers and find out what screen resolutions you have because we want to design something that fits on all of them. And so for me, having that window size when I'm deciding, okay, we're, we're, I usually get a go-to meeting, I, I size it up for the client and I have that data viewer showing what size it is so I can remember that right down because they say, hey, that's going to work perfect because it's not too big, not too small. And you know, I set my screen resolution on mine to match their smallest one. We go over it. It, it works out great. So I love that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a very handy one to have. I also often put the, and I forget off the top of my head because sometimes I forget what they are. You've got to look them up. But the one that tells you what version of FileMaker server you're, you're operating. Right. Uh, get application version. You got it. I think that's the one. Yeah. And, and it's handy because if you work with clients, you know, that are coming to you for assistance, you know, I do that a lot where I help them over hurdles. Sometimes I need to know what version of FileMaker server they're running. And if I'm connected up to their solution, then I can find out quickly by just opening the data view and it's right there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That 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 is a good one. Well, let's talk about the wheat side then. Because... <laughs> Because the great thing, well, uh, there is one thing I want to mention about uh, the the frosted side, uh, is that it dirties the code with table references, and that works some ways and not other ways. You know, so if you're taking that calculation to finally rest and live inside of managed database, you probably don't want the references to the local table, and you have to take those out. And that's the only kind of 
I wish they had a copy without local references button or something. Uh, so I could just copy and paste and not have to take out all that code. I mean, it doesn't make a difference on how it operates. It's just all of a sudden you have table names in front of there. When it, when you're looking at the calculation dialog, it says, hey, the context is this. You don't need to say, I'm in that context. It'll work, but you don't need it. Yeah, it would be good that when you copy, just like you said, when you copy it, if they could somehow interpret the copied clipboard, and then when you paste it, it would automatically substitute the table, the local table, and remove the reference to it so that you don't have the table name or table occurrence colon, colon. That's even even better than what I thought of. I was saying we'd have another, but you're saying just automatically that seems entirely feasible. Yeah, something that the developers, you know, that Claris would do. Yep. Now, if you're going to a script, it's not a big deal. You're going to need those those local table references. But right. anyhow, that's that's a very minor issue with the, with that uh, with that data viewer when you're doing code in there that you have to take those references out. Otherwise, I can't think of any downsides of it. It's it's always helped me. And the only problem I have is remembering to use it because you know you're 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 going along, you're going you know writing a script, and then you have to do a complicated form. You just got to revert to the data viewer, and it really help you get things done much faster. Yeah, the the only other thing is sometimes the things you're analyzing are context based. So you'll notice that as you flip from file to file or layout to layout, the results of your evaluated calculations that you've created could change based on where you are in the system, obviously. But other than that little thing to remember, there is hardly a downside to the data viewer. Yeah, I've caught myself in that problem before. I'm like, why does it say that? Oh, because I had another file for it. Okay. <laughs> So let's talk about the left side. And the left side is really for use, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see any other use, just for using it with the script debugger because it tells you all the stuff that's going on in the system. Now, it, it will always show you your global variables, but when you're running a script, it will show you local variables and fields represented inside the script so that you can, don't have to... If you remember the old days, what we had to do is we had to put all these fields on these layouts, right? You know, you, and you had to keep, you know, okay, we, if we switch to five layouts, we're going to have to dirty up five different layouts. And, and the data viewer is great because it just, it thinks for you. It, it gets those values from the, you know, the current layout and the current record and puts them right in there, gets those local variables so you can check them. You can even edit them in there if you want to. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, it, it is amazing having the global variables, even the local variables and, and all the um, state of affairs, the current state of affairs based on the script. Is, is really cool. And what I use this mostly for is in the middle of a loop. So I can see the iterations of the variables as the loops are passing through. It can be really handy for that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a handy tool. It can really, it just takes the script debugger up a level, which we'll talk about next. My only pet peeve about the, the current area in the script debugger, the, the wheat side, as I'm calling it, <laughs> is is global variables. And you've got to watch out, in my opinion, about how many global variables you put in there. Because if you put 100 global variables in there, then your data viewer on that left side has all of those variables in there. And it clutters it up, so it makes it difficult to use it with the script debugger. And a lot of times what I find out is developers are using global variables when they could have just used a local variable. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, I've stumbled upon that same code where why are you using a global variable when a local variable will do? Really, the, I think the main reason to use a global variable is when you're doing th things in that file across several scripts and subscripts. I mean, or you want something persistent to live outside scripts in general. But yeah, when 
if, we, if you're doing anything on a local script level, always use a local variable. There's, you know, there's a time and a place for each, but I totally agree. If you have put too many globals in there, uh, the pollution starts to happen. Yeah, my most common example of a good use of a global variable is declaring the file name in an opening script so that you can, if somebody decides to change the file name, you are declaring it on open so you can put that in any scripts that import directly from one table to another from the same file to the same file. That can help out. So I always do that on the opening, and it has to be in a global variable because it has to be available all the time. I guess I could do it on the fly each time I use an import from you know, a local table to a local table, but, um, you know, it just seems to me easier to do it there and then have that variable always available. Right. Yeah. And that's a good example of why you'd use a global variable. Other things are like, for instance, a platform potentially, uh, or the current user, the current logged in user, although it's not a substitute for security, but it could be a substitute for preferential, uh, decision-making in the scripts. Okay, who is this user? Okay, I want to keep that persistent here so I don't have to keep calling upon it each time. Right, right. Just, I, I guess our only suggestion here and in, in, in gotcha is just, you know, think about what you put in there. Just don't make everything a global variable. You know, choose wisely when you do that so that you can still use the, the data viewer with the script debugger efficiently. Right. Yep. So script debugger, you guys ready to move on? Sure. Okay. First thing I'd recommend is learn what each button does. Um, we won't go over them necessarily, but you you should spend some time sitting down and just discovering, and you'll find out that some of the buttons aren't that useful, or at least most of the time they're not that useful. Uh, like set next step, I hardly ever use that, but I have used it on occasion, so knowing what it does is very helpful. Right. Yeah, I think uh, when I pulled the developers here at Productive Computing, most everyone uses um, Step Into as the main one, which is F6 on the keyboard. And occasionally uh, F7 to step out, which will bring you to the next breakpoint and things like that. Uh, of course, Set the Next Step is another popular one because then you don't have to watch the script happen. You just set the next step and start from there. So those are the main ones. The least used one seems to be um, the F5, the step over. Not, not many people seem to be using that, at least on the two or three people that I polled um, who had an opportunity to feed, give me some feedback on that. Yeah, you had, definitely have to use a step into every time you start a script from a button. You have no choice. Right. <laughs> so you have to use that one. <laughs> There's no choice. Um, yep. And then step O. So step into and step over are uh, are are definitely, uh, I think I got those names right. They're definitely the most important right there. The step over prevents you from going into a perform script, but runs one step at a time. Same thing with step into, but it will step in to the subscript and go through there. Like, you know, so those right. are the, the most two most important to know. But I think you also need to know that if you close the script debugger, it's going to run the entire script. Yeah, that was always an eye opener when they first released script debugger. Could never figure out why closing it would run the script. It seemed like a non, it's something you wouldn't want to do necessarily. You know, I close the window. I don't want it to keep going, but that's exactly what it does. Yeah, and they've stuck with it because you still have to hit the halt or stop button. It's a little square, I think, uh, yep. to make sure you stop it and then you can close it. So Right, right, right. But, but there's handy tools because when you're debugging, you can click on the little um, edit pencil and go right into edit the script right there. Um, and then you're probably going to say this too, but when you make a change to an edited script while debugger is running, 
it's going to force you into a situation where you have to stop the currently running script in order to see the changes you've made in the script. Right. Doesn't live change it for you. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's why I often don't use that button because I stop it and then go find the script. It's usually open or filtered already uh, in, inside a script workspace anyhow. So. Right. Yeah. And if you have multiple monitors in your environment, which I'm sure most of us do, it's nice to have the script on one part of your monitor, have the script debugger on another, and then ha sort of go back and forth without having to close all those windows and keep finding it. Kind of like what you just said, already filtered, already ready to go. Yeah, I should get myself a second monitor. Yeah, for sure, without a <laughs> doubt. Uh, most of us have two to three monitors just because you know we have our management and email on one monitor, and then we have FileMaker on another, and then all the dev tools on a third. So let me ask you a question, Mark. Uh, do you use the set error logging step, or have you used it uh, at this point? So I have not personally used it, but we created a video about set error logging and there's one available on YouTube and it really does define some of the advantages of, of doing it. And it, it's actually a pretty darn cool technology. I guess the only disadvantage to set error logging is it doesn't work on uh, perform script on server or any server side scripts that run. It only works with FileMaker Pro Advanced in the local environment. The logging once turned on will create a text file in your documents folder on your local machine. So if you wanted to take advantage of that you, and you had users in place and you set error logging on, you'd have to ask the user um, to, to send you the file or create an automatic import script to grab that and put it into FileMaker so that you can grab the log and see it without bothering the user. So when set error logging uh, came about, I thought about how could you use this? What situation is this good for? And and, it, and the thing that comes clear to me is that when a lot of times a, a user on an established system, or maybe it's a new system, it doesn't really matter, will say, hey, I'm having this problem every time I do this. And then you go try and it doesn't happen. And then you get in a, a screen sharing and they do and it doesn't happen. And so the set the error logging that that is you know logging whatever they do will log what they did because they can't figure it out they can't say oh I clicked here clicked here clicked here now you don't get everything they did you just get what scripts they ran but it might help to reveal a problem that a user was having difficulty describing right and it does keep track of every error that the script came across so if nothing else you can say and you can identify where the errors are the script line that it came from and under what conditions it happened, which again, to your point, is nearly impossible for a user to describe or remember. Or was having difficulty describing. And it's these little nuggets of information that we often forget as developers, because the, there's so many of them, and the tool has, has grown so vast and wide over the years, that when this tool first came out, we were all kind of talking about it and saying, oh, this is a game changer, this is exciting. And then, you know, six months go by and then we forget that it even exists until we come up with like a podcast like this and say, oh yeah, set error login, I remember that. Yeah, I should use that more often. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 I wish I'd had this feature a long time ago because I can remember clients telling me about problems. I'd say, if I can't, I, I would have to tell them, if I can't reproduce it, then I can't fix it. And at least I have another option to throw out there, this tool that will log those errors and possibly get me closer to the, the, you know, the solution. So true. So true. Especially on features like this that we might not use all the time. 
So just to take a tally, as far as you know, I'll, I I have not used Setter Login. I'm theorizing how I could use it. I'm waiting for that time when it's going to be available. But you guys have not actually used it yet, right? Yeah, I I knew about it. I knew I know we have a video on YouTube about it, but I never have used it personally. But but isn't it like uh, when you you know when I was growing up, I lived in London, and I didn't visit the Tower of London because it was always going to be there you know and it took me to be away for 20 years to go back and actually visit it and so often we overlook the obvious because it's so obvious and it's just there yeah i think that's probably the case with most developers they haven't had the chance to really use it but it, it, again it you know remembering that what it basically does because it's actually pretty easy to implement right it's not very difficult you turn it on and in an open script, and it'll log everything that user does and put it in that, and then you can come back and snatch that little text file, and that, that's about it. And then there's, I think I, I made a database on the databasepros.com that'll import that file so you can take a look at it outside of a text file so you can have records and stuff. But that's about it. But it, it's like you don't use it that often, but when you do need it, it's good to remember that it's there. Right. Yeah, that's exactly a great example of what I'm talking about. Tools that we don't often use but probably should. Right. But the important part here, I think, is that you know that it's there. Right. And you don't have to know everything about it. Just a basic idea. And then when you need it, then you go, oh, yeah, there's that. Let me look up and, and search the Internet and try some testing and things like that. And then you go, oh, that's going to help me really well right here. So, yeah, knowing the whole FileMaker is not that important. Knowing the little bullet points is important. So same thing with with setter logic set error logging. I think the same thing comes with the FileMaker server logs. I personally don't use them a lot because FileMaker server generally runs pretty well and you don't need to look at them. Um, and I think probably Mark is more well-versed um, in these FileMaker server logs and how they've used them at productive computing. And so I'll let you talk about them, whatever you want to say about there's the event, the access, the web publishing, the data API, and the top calls. Right. So when it comes to logs, especially when you run a hosting company, there's oftentimes where you need to rely on the logs because a customer will notoriously say, um, tell me what happened with server and why we had to restart it. And a lot of times they're looking for what ends up being a needle in a haystack. And as good as the logs are, they are not really 100% um, capable of showing you what might have happened with FileMaker server in the event of some let's say the database server stopped, or let's say the web publishing engine this suddenly decided to stop. Uh, the logs don't necessarily tell you how that happened or what caused it. Um, so sometimes you have to look at the OS logs to help. But even with that, it really doesn't point a finger and there's never, hardly ever a smoking gun. But what they can do is they can analyze things uh, that could be really important to customers. For example, customers that have really, really large files and a lot of external data. Uh, what you'll find, guys, is that when FileMaker Server does a backup, um, there's two choices you have. You can either um, have it verify or ha have it not verify. So you'll run the backups, let's say, in the morning or in the afternoon when people are using the file, and you won't do a verification because um, maybe it's unnecessary to do it during the day. But at night, you will. And what you'll see is a distinct difference in how long FileMaker Server takes to do those two processes. To analyze that, you would 
um, you would grab the event log, import it into, let's say, FileMaker, and analyze when the script started and when the script stopped. It would tell you, really, to the second, how long that script took to run. And that can help you identify what's going on with server when you start putting those pieces together as a big puzzle piece to say, okay, this script ran and it did this and it stopped here and it did this and that. So if you're troubleshooting, the event logs and the other logs are really helpful. If you're working with the data API, of course, the data API log has things that would otherwise be uh, behind closed doors. In other words, you, you need the log in order to see some things when you're working with the data API. Top calls, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with that, that only is turned on when you turn it on. In other words, when you restart FileMaker Server or reinstall FileMaker Server, top calls is off by default because it's, pretty, um, it's a pretty uh, intense process. But when you turn it on, FileMaker Server will do sort of a deep analysis of the top calls that are running in terms of the time in milliseconds that it takes for them to uh, accumulate. And then once you run that, let's say you run it for five minutes, during that time, you'll be able to do and see which scripts took longer, which events took longer. And you can, it's really more for on the fly troubleshooting. Now you can have it run indefinitely. And some people do, let's say they run it for 24 hours and just take a look at what scripts are really um, holding, holding you back, what, what scripts are taking the longest. So that can be helpful in a pinch, but it's not something you normally have on all the time. Uh, the access log is good when you want to see who's accessing your system and when and maybe how often, although we don't really use that very much. That's more of an end user developer type thing. Um, so we end up using the event log, occasionally the web publishing log, the data API log. We don't really use it on behalf of customers. We only use it when we're actually doing API work and then top calls we'll use in a pinch. But all of those can be handy. But I remember back to uh, when I worked uh, at a contract with a client uh, in Los Angeles. And I was using the event log a lot because we were running scripts on the server. And they would tell me in the event logs, if I remember correctly, that that script wasn't working and, and or that script wouldn't work here. And sometimes I go, why is I ran this script and it didn't do what I wanted to I look at the event log and say, hey, didn't run the script step because it's not compatible with FileMaker server. That's the one thing I did, and it can be handy. Um, but I, I also like what you said about top calls, and I think this is kind of one of those things is experience levels, is turn on top calls when, you, you, when you're having some speed issues, and then don't turn it on any other time. You don't need to have it on all the time. It's a troubleshooting mechanism. Turn it on to find out what problems are going on, and then turn it off so that you don't have uh, speed degradation on your server. Right. That's right. And there's videos on the internet for that, people showing you how to use top calls. Uh, I think Chris Ippolite actually um, takes it and imports it into FileMaker and then does a chart on it for things like that. Uh, I think we've got a video or two on top calls as well. Okay. Developer utilities. Now, first thing that comes to, mention, to mind here is the deprecation of runtime. Let's talk about that a little bit. Does that going to affect... Your guys' business at all? It doesn't affect mine at all. I don't do runtime solutions, but I I kind of understand where other people are coming from. Yeah, it's basically an installed app without having to purchase FileMaker. So we used to use it back in the day to do demo files, like of our core CRM. People who wanted to actually have a demo, but they weren't yet committed to the FileMaker platform, didn't own it, so they could download the runtime, install the runtime, get the CRM 
with a true blue look and feel of how it would be in their office. But we stopped doing that as well because uh, as cool as that is, runtimes in and of their very nature, they're kind of hard to use for a user unless you bundle them with a full-blown installer. And then to run them, you know, you have to kind of click on an icon inside a folder. It's kind of an, a strange way to run an application when it's all said and done. So um, it probably doesn't surprise us that they've deprecated that and want to move forward with something else. Or um, to your point, guys, you know, when you're talking about FileMaker, almost always you're talking about some form of shared environment, which would automatically necessitate the need for the FileMaker client itself. I haven't used them for a very long time. Um, I used to, you know, when I had the ISP billing, it was all runtime. But I just think that these days people have got FileMaker and are willing to buy it. And so the runtime really is becoming a thing of the past. And it has its own limitations because it's not networkable. So you can only use it for a single user solution. So I don't think it's going to make any difference to me for sure. I, th I think that's the key, Michael. What you just said is that it's it's not networkable. I mean, it, it can, you can put it on FileMaker server, but then you don't need the runtime, right? But the point is that people are so used to getting the internet built into their apps, there's not a lot of use for the runtime anymore. And, and I haven't used it ever in any of my solutions, but I, I, I can understand some people base their lives off of it, but um, your livelihood, but I, I see it going away as, as a as a you know something about the times. You know things change, and runtimes is not relevant anymore. Well, the other thing is that, and I don't know whether Mark's noticed this because Mark probably works in Windows more than more than you and I do. But a runtime version in Windows is an enormously big file. I mean, it's like 170 megabytes just of uh, utilities and whatever they, they call the little plugins on a Windows machine. The whole FileMaker application uh, attached to your solution, so it makes it quite big. Sure. Well, encryption at rest is sort of the new requirement now for hosting files in general. I know with FileMaker Cloud, the files have to be encrypted. That's just, there's no way around it. With traditional FileMaker server, I think encryption at rest uh, is probably the default posture. Uh, when you, if it isn't, it, there's an option to accept files that are encrypted or not, but it's encouraged um, by everyone, including our esteemed Mr. Blackwell, that you know files should be encrypted at rest. So you do that in the developer tool, you encrypt it, then it becomes essentially uncrackable in the in the hands of a perpetrator. You have that file. If they manage to get it somehow, uh, it'll be nearly impossible, if not impossible, to crack. So that's the big advantage of encryption at rest. I, I think the big disadvantage is if if you were to forget the encryption password, um, you're out of luck and even the people at Claris can't help you. Right. You think about it, everybody's on the go. So they have their, their iPhone or their iPad and their and their desktop machine. And you can't do a runtime on both of them. You're going to want the information wherever you're at. So most people are going for cloud services these days. So runtime really just is is kind of, I some people will probably be mad about me saying this and I understand, but it's it's kind of, um, pointless with where everything's going this day. And that's why FileMaker's not putting any more money into it. And that's why they're finally getting rid of it because um, they're they're finding problems with modern operating systems. So it's really kind of one of those ancient tools that was cool. We we all have fond memories of it, but it really is irrelevant. These John, days. you can't have fond memories of it. You never use it. 
right? I was talking about everybody else, right? <laughs> it sounded like a good idea. That's my fond memory, you know? <laughs> so let's talk about some of the other developer utilities. Uh, and I think that this is probably uh, something that, uh, that Michael and I both haven't played in. Uh, this, you know, this sandbox uh, encryption at rest. Uh, I don't rename solution files. I don't strip the admin password. Any reason why you would do any of those, Mark? The point at which you're challenged, there's two points where you're challenged for a password. Just like you said, if you were to have a local copy of that and you open it in FileMaker, it's going to challenge you for the encryption password. If you get it, um, if you enter it, and then you, you're, you, you proceed. If you're hosting it for the first time, in other words, if you move it to FileMaker server and you do a file open or you know open host, uh, it'll immediately uh, prompt you for the password, for the encryption password, one time, just when you open the file. And then you do have the option to store it in the cache so that you won't be prompted each time it opens on FileMaker server. So you could do it one time and then have it there. If you restart the server, all the files are going to most likely attempt to open if you have that setting in FileMaker server. If your file is encrypted, it will attempt to open it. And if you've told it to save the password, great, it'll open and it won't prompt anybody for it. If you don't have it stored that way, then obviously it's not going to open. It will remain closed until you manually go and open it. And then when you manually open it, it's going to ask you for the encryption password. Yeah, I think that's the important part right there. And I want to emphasize what you just said, Mark, is that if somebody somehow gets access to your server, gets a copy of that file, puts it on some kind of you know uh, portable device, they won't be able to open it. I mean, it would be very, they'd have to have really great hacking tools to get into it, or, or maybe it's impossible, I don't know, but that's the whole idea behind it, is that they really, it's not going to help you when the file's over the network, right? It's just if they get a copy of it, right? It can be. Uh, you know, I, I totally get what you're saying, because at the end of the day, we're human beings and filled with flaws. And if you're a single developer and you've, you're the only one with that password and somehow you've managed to lose it, because we are humans and we are flawed, then you're really out of luck. I mean, you've really done yourself in. So this is not a problem that exists only in the FileMaker world, though. This exists on you know keys when when you have a, a key for with AWS uh, and you use a key for a certain situation. If you lose that key, uh, you're not going to be able to get it back. Yes, you can make new keys and there's other workarounds, but Nowadays, it's, uh, yeah, that is one little thing that can be very scary. I have to say that the fact that it can't be recovered if you lose it is a real big disadvantage. But really, it's the same concept with regular passwords in FileMaker. If you lose them, technically, you can't get them back. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the admin password, right? For the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, uh, there's really no difference. It's just that you have a second password, really, is what it comes down to when you have encryptions. Well, you can't, you, look, there are ways to get into uh, a, a file that you've lost the password or the developer's died. I, I know that because I had to do it recently. But um, those are occasional, for occasional emergency use only. But, the encryption at rest, which you're talking about, is absolutely uncrackable, and uh, supposedly NASA can't even crack it, which is hard to believe. NSA, rather. I believe that the passwords in FileMaker are pretty much unbreakable also, and the way that those password crackers work uh, 
is that they actually write a new password in there, possibly corrupting the file along the way. They don't actually take out and grab your existing password. They write a new password into it. Correct. Older versions of FileMaker, they were able to extract the password, but uh, the new versions of FileMaker with that tool that you're referring to will simply write over the security and create new security. Um, it writes directly into the file, and like you said, direct and can potentially corrupt it as well. So, so, so really, what it comes down to is it's the same thing. I mean, I get, I, I don't really uh, encrypt my files on the server. I don't recommend my clients do it. Um, I may in the future, uh, and but it, if I had to, it's really kind of the same idea. I think as passwords, it's really you know something you have to remember. And I I read my clients the right act when I give them this the full access password. I know some developers don't, but for me, if I do work for them, they own it. It just it's just the way it is. And so I give them that full access password. I say don't use it. This is in case I get hit by a bus, and you need to hire another developer to do the work. That's why you have this full access password. Yeah, I, I do. I, I see both your points here, but it is truly a one-way door, and losing that password um, is curtains. So you you might w want to consider a way around that, where you might have the best of both worlds, is that uh, when you work and you deploy a system, keep a copy in your own records that's unencrypted. That way you can never really lose the file. Um, now, the data, that's another story, but at least you wouldn't be able to wouldn't lose all the the, the schema. So, and, and chances are if, yeah, but if you're in a situation where somehow you've encrypted a database, you've hosted it, that's your only copy, you forgot the password, yeah, it's game over and the data would be locked in there. So make sure you also give yourself the ability to export the data in a file that might be encrypted just in case you need those back doors. That's a good point. Those are actually a couple of good points there. Um, let's move on to renaming a solution. I've never used it. I just rename my file. Is it just for older multi-file solutions or does it actually benefit you uh, inside of a, when you're importing from one table to another table inside the same file? Does that really, that renaming feature inside the developer utilities, is it really necessary? Is it just for the runtime? Or I mean, I haven't never really used it, so I'm not as familiar with it. Oh yeah, this, this particular feature is absolutely essential in a multi-file solution. Now, maybe not necessarily a two-file solution, but a lot of times we inherit these old solutions that have you know, 10, 20, 30 files, and they want to rename this file or that file, and we're combining files and all kinds of things. So when it's time to rename it, you put this all the files in the tool, and you say, OK, I want to rename file 3, 5, and 7 with these new names. And then you execute that. It will rename all the files for you, which is obvious. And we could definitely do that manually. But then it goes all on all the internal links and renames them as well in a proper way. So now all of those references, the external file references and so forth, uh, are renamed as well. So that can be a huge, huge help on a multi-file solution when it's time to rename something. And I would not recommend doing it any other way. Now, uh, this is a question for both of you, but um, Michael and Mark, uh, and, and I'll start by saying what I do. I rarely create multi-file solutions. Uh, I've done them in the past when there's multiple organizations that were developing something and these guys might need to share some of this information, but they really need their own solution. But how often do you design multi-file solutions? I'm just curious. Almost never. We, like I said, we inherit a lot of multi-file solutions because of the old ways of FileMaker. Um, in creating our modern products, they are typically one file, 
but there's always cases for multiple files. Sometimes uh, you want to create a separate file for people to be able to access it and get um, different types of attributes like they want. You want to give them access to layouts and you want to give them their own file to do that. That might be one option. I've seen situations where in an intense importing situation, let's say you had 10 users all importing data throughout the day in a very rapid, like an analytics type of thing. I've seen situations that if you split that across multiple files, the performance is better than trying to have 10 people always importing into a single file because of its physics. It's still one file that FileMaker has to deal with. Um, but th those are a couple of rare outlying cases. For the most part, we try to create single files. Uh, there's another case, um, WebDirect, right? You, sometimes you want to just throw up a web form, have that the only thing available through WebDirect so that you can collect data. It, it almost doesn't make sense to use the main company file for a one-off web form for web data. It's a nice way to separate things. Again, it's a physics problem, not so much. Um, it's, everything's capable to do, most everything is capable to use one file. And with rare occasions, that's the way we do it too. Yeah, there are there are exceptions. And one of the uh, things that just comes to mind is I've got a solution uh, in California that they use virtual lists to generate quotes. And each user has the VL file, which is a separate file on their desktop. And it works with that local copy as opposed to having it in the main copy where you'd always get conflicts because you're storing data in global fields and it just didn't work. Well, that's a great example. That's to, to the example I was talking about where multiple people import. Um, you could have a local file or a file that's sort of more dedicated to a group, a smaller group for the physics of it. Yeah, correct. You know, and also, John, where you're, you know, having a, a file that you have on an iPad and you're going around a building and doing inventory, for example, and you might not have internet connectivity all the time. So you're just doing it on that file and then transmitting the data back to the server, server hosted file when you're finished. Right. Your, your standard synchronization or distributed system. Gotcha. Those are good examples. Great. So, but rename solution file that that developer utility is probably more of those things you've got to remember for those certain situations, but you probably won't be using it that often. What about strip? So just a quick question, Mark. Does it if you're just if you've just got one file um, when you change the name of the file, you know, even at the desktop level all of the references are going to be automatically corrected anyway, aren't they? It's only when you've got multiple files that you need to have those references connected properly. Correct. This really doesn't apply to a single file solution. Even when you're importing from one table inside the single file to another table? Correct. Um, I believe no, it, does, it does apply there in that situation. Um, I'm trying to think about the import. You're talking about the import script step that references a particular file name, let's say. Yeah. If you try to, if you have table A and table B inside file one, only one file, and you say, I want to get some data from table A over to table B, you can do that. And you can, and I do it quite often when I'm, you know, I'll have like a, a template that I want to fill in on records where they can click a button and have it pull that data from one place and fill in the template. And then they can change it in a variety of ways that would, you know, be different than the template, but it, it gives them, it, it makes their life easier. And so when you do that, you have to specify in the file path, the name of that file. 
um, and you know the reference to it. And I'm guessing that that is part of what this run rename solution file. Although I've never I've never done anything about it. It's never been a problem. So I'm I'm you know, but I always use that dollar sign dollar sign file name on startup. I set the current file name to that. So maybe I'm uh, bypassing. So I don't know the answer to this. I'm and maybe ne- none of us do. But I'm you know, so maybe we shouldn't ask questions we don't know the answers, right? <laughs> Well, we always do that. <laughs> I think that's a good takeaway. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good takeaway, homework assignment. Figure out how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can put it uh, in the notes or something, make a, a comment on it and, and do that and see what happens. But let's move on to strip admin password. I've, I've never used it. I don't see the point. Well, uh, I'll tell you two reasons why it might come in handy for you. Um, in our company, we sometimes keep sensitive data in a particular, in, in a FileMaker database. And because we have uh, very advanced and shrewd developers, not that they're dishonest, but they have the capability of cracking a file if they have access to it. So if there is something either on behalf of a client or behalf of the company itself that we need to protect, uh, sometimes I will, in fact, strip the admin password of a given file, uh, realizing that um, it's it's only more of a black box at that point, so it's not something that you you obviously once you strip the password you cannot edit that file anymore. So uh, what I've done in the past is I've kept a copy with the admin password in a place that people can't get to it, and then I'll distribute one that's available, let's say on a server that they have access to, but they really can't edit it because the admin password is stripped out. So that whatever security I dictate for that file is, I know for a fact, is going to be adhered to. Right. But so I was going to say the key takeaway here is that when you're doing that, Mark, you're doing that from an expert level standpoint. And it's not something that the amateur developer or, you know, part-time developer should even think about doing, in my opinion. Because they don't know enough, right? Don't do it light. Don't do it lightly. Exactly. Very good point. Yeah. No, that would be right. It could be a very dangerous tool if you just think that you're protecting your file, only to realize later that you can't get back in as an admin person and do anything with it. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that I found handy in the past, we haven't used it lately, but let's just say you did have a black box. Uh, let's say you wanted, I'll give you a great example. Let's say you had a black box that that migrated data from QuickBooks to Outlook or something, and it was proprietary and you wanted that locked up. You could give and distribute that file where you could gain access to it, enter data, do all that stuff, but no one could ever break into the code and sort of steal the intellectual property and or the code within it. So you just... It would be a one-time black box distributed file. Kind of think of it as a custom function that no one really has access to. It still does what it needs to do. You need to get out there, but you know full well it can't be cracked because the admin password is gone. You know, that's an interesting point, but I, playing the devil's advocate here, I mean, we are talking about intellectual property and all of us come up with techniques and methodologies that are a little bit out of the box thinking and um, and we can take some credit or all credit for. But the reality is that all information like that, you know, techniques and methodologies should be shared. Um, and I try and share everything that I come up with with the community. And I, I've never yet seen a point of hiding something I've come up with just because I don't want anybody else to use it. It depends on whether you're selling it or not. 
Well, there is that, yes, of course. You know, from a commercial standpoint, that makes perfect sense if you don't want somebody else to figure out what you've done. But again, it comes down to, I think all of us can look at something and go, well, that's interesting. I wonder how that works. And we start experimenting and sooner or later, we're going to figure it out. Well, to your point, the things we just talked about really are really are outlying cases. Encryption at rest is really when the file isn't hosted per se. Runtime, not hosted, not networkable. Strip admin password, not hosted, not networkable. Generally, those tools, those advanced tools, which came out a long time ago, by the way, most of these, are really for those edge cases where someone has possession of the file. And, you know, th the personality trait is different when that happens. But John had mentioned, and I totally agree, the actual administrator password is near impossible, if not impossible, to crack provided that file is hosted somewhere. You know, it's a one-way hash. It's it's top-of-the-line security. So in a hosted environment, you're in many ways a lot safer than you are in any of these other local file, runtime, encryption at rest type scenarios. Okay. So I, as you can tell, I rarely go into the developer utilities, but if you do need to, be careful is what I think we're saying. You know, don't, don't uh, do some of these things unless you're sure about what they do or you have a backup of your file before you do it. Now let's move on to the recovery tool. Go on, John. I mean, that's true of so many things. Like we talked about in another earlier podcast about using the replace field contents. You've got to be 100% alert before you do that. So if you're tired, don't use it because you'll make a mistake and then you're completely and utterly screwed. And the reason we know this is because you and I have both made those mistakes before, right? So, uh, Well, uh, more than once in my occasion. Right. And so we remember really well. We're trying to, to save people from making the same mistakes. So just be careful about some of these features you use. Sometimes you get, like Michael saying, you get you get comfortable with FileMaker and you're all, oh, FileMaker is so easy. It's so forgiving. And, oh, I can do this and I can undo it. Well, some things really aren't undoable. So watch out. So let's move on to the file recovery tool. Um, the most misunderstood tool in FileMaker, in my opinion, people mistake it. I mean, I was just talking to a client two days ago who had recovered his file and continued to use it. That's not the point. The idea behind recovering a file, let's say that you go one day for some reason uh, to open up your file and it won't open up. Yikes. Or maybe you're using it. It does weird things. Oh, well, I've got the recovery feature. I'll just go up to the recovery uh, choice, recover this file. Oh, it's working now. Okay, great. Let me go ahead and continue to use it. No, that's not what it's for. It's to get that file open and working so you can get that data over into a version that's not corrupt. The most common scenario would be your server crashes and the file won't open up anymore, but you've made backups. So you go to a backup, you make a clone, you import the data of the recovered version because you recover it so you can pull it into an, an uncompromised version of your file. There's no other use for it. If you use a recovered file, you're bound to get bitten where you'll no longer be able to use it and no longer be able to recover it. Yeah, because at a certain point, it's going to, the file is going to say, I'm sorry, I've had enough and I'm not cooperating with you anymore, and goodbye. And at that point, everything you've done is lost. So you're absolutely right, John. It's a, a very dangerous thing that people misunderstand. You know, and when a file crashes and opens, it performs a consistency check 
that's a warning you need to go to a close the file down export the data or do a data migration and go back to a pristine copy and i always have a pristine copy of every single file i've ever developed just for that purpose just in case of that emergency but recover is very very dangerous yeah i can't tell you how many clients i've gone and i've seen their file up on the server and it says the word recovered at the end or i go into somebody's file and and they say well why do i have this table occurrence there that's 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 not attached to a table and it's not you know and it says it's i forget what the wording it says but it says it's you know it's corrupt or something well you know why why when i go to this record does it crash every time why don't i switch to this layout does it crash you know those things shouldn't be happening in a file maker database and that's often caused by people recovering i mean it's initially caused by other issues you know you're crashing the the the, the database while it's open but don't take it further make it worse by continuing to open it up as developers if we crash that file we typically go back to the last save version while we're developing because we know what can happen we don't want to introduce corruption and there's no way to fix it there really isn't there's a way to get the file open with the recover but there's no way to really fix the problem so be wary about that but i think that mark has some points about how you might use a recover tool to analyze corruption right so sometimes a customer will ask, oh, you know, my file, like they were working with another company or something like that, or they were worried about their file. They want to see the condition of their file. You can actually take a copy of their database and recover it, even though it doesn't necessarily say that it needs it. You can recover it anyway, analyze the log, and the log will essentially try to identify uh, what might be going on in that file if it found anything missing or um, out of kilter in some way or shape. So when you you can actually analyze a perfectly good solution to see, does it have any corruption? Now, it's not foolproof. It's not very detailed. It doesn't tell you this script uh, line four is corrupted or this layout and this image on this layout is corrupted. It doesn't really do any of that, but it does tell you, oh, missing blocks or this or that. So we sometimes use it just to, to give peace of mind a lot of times. It's just to give peace of mind. And I think it's really helpful for you to go ahead and recover a perfectly fine database, like make one from scratch. You know, it doesn't have to have any data. Try recovering it, look at the log and see what it says. So you can get familiar with it because some of the stuff is not clear on what it is. And what you're gonna notice when you have a, when you're trying to analyze, a, you know, the log on, a, on something that's damaged that you'll see stuff that you're like, hey, I've never seen that before. What's that all about? And, and that's more of, you know, what I think you can do with the analyzation. I mean, some of them kind of point you to where you to look, but some of them are so vague. You're like, wow, I don't know what this is talking about at all, but it's not in a, a, a version, a, a good version when I recover it. So it must be bad, right? I mean, how do you, how do you do look at that, Mark? Well, in terms of analyzing what specifically is going on? Yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, any kind of pointers on, I mean, that's the way I look at it. If I see anything I didn't see in a, in a, a good version of the file, when I recovered it, and but I see that stuff in a, in a, a what I think is something that's corrupt, or I'm trying to figure out maybe it's not exhibiting any problems, right? But you're going well. Let me check out this file. If I see some weird stuff in there um, that I don't see in a reg, you know, a recovery of a of a good file, that's when I start getting alerted, and I think that's what you're kind of referring to mostly. Or yeah, it's a yeah. It can be an indicator that something is wrong with the file. Now, didn't didn't FM diff. Uh, by Winifred, Winfred Huslick, who's now passed away, 
analyzed the file to the extent it could see all the differences, but it could see how many times it's crashed and been recovered and stuff like that. Are you familiar with that tool? Yeah, I, I remember when, when I don't know his, the pronunciation of his first name, but I remember at him at many DevCons and I have used his tool and looked at it. And yeah, I do remember it said, uh, it identified or attempt to identify corruption in a file. And it, I think it even went so far to say how many times the file had been recovered, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I think also how many times it crashed too. Unexpectedly closed, right? Well, I, I want to take this moment just to explain to our listeners what the effect of a recovered file, using a recovered file is. Imagine that you're on the street and somebody comes up and hits you with a stun gun, a taser. You're going to go down like a sack of shit and you're going to shake your head and you're going to be non-compass mentis for a few minutes. But then you're going to get up and you're going to be okay. Now, if you keep getting hit by that same taser, after a while, your brain and you are going to be completely fried. And that's what happens with a file that's recovered and you keep using. There's a point of no return. Yeah, that was a, a, quite a graphic description, but it did make a good point. I, 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 I kind of brings it home for me a little bit, right? That's the idea, John. Yeah, and, and I don't think people can, there is really no repair or reconstruction in a programmatic way that you can do. And there's different types of uh, corruption in a file. For instance, you could have uh, the data corrupted where certain records cannot be found or certain records uh, when you go to them it crashes the file so that'd be like data corruption then you have layout corruption where certain graphics on a file would cause a file maker to crash because you get to that layout it sees the corrupted graphic and it dies then there's other things like where your entire um, custom menus are screwed up even though they look correct actually we, you can't modify them from that point forward i've seen value lists get corrupt so there's so many different flavors of corruption and so many levels of it. Again, kind of re strengthening what you said, Michael, is that, you know, it starts here and this part of the file is broken and then you recover it again. And now this part of the file is broken and it could get to the point where eventually it's just not going to recover. And we have seen situations where recovery doesn't work. And at that point, your only way back is the backup. Now, some corruption is easily fixed, right? Like you mentioned a corrupt record. There's many ways to get rid of these corrupt values out of there without recovering it. You can just simply export your data up until that record and after it and then re-import it and then you'll be minus that record and then you don't have that corrupt record. That usually is not a big issue for a FileMaker. It's usually isolated that one record. We've, you know, when I worked at, at Claris back in the day, it was it was in a, an article, a tech info, which is now called Knowledge Base, and they they had these ways to get rid of corrupt layouts, um, ways to get rid of corrupt records. I remember the corrupt layout one was go to the layout before it, scroll off all the way down to the end into the gray area where the layout doesn't go, switch over to the layout to the next one that's corrupt. Then you can delete it, and then uh, you know I don't know if that works anymore because I haven't had to do it in a while. But there was, there's a, there's sometimes some ways if you think about it to get around this corruption without recovering, without reverting to a backup. But you know if it's something like it crashes, that's not going to be one that you can solve by manipulating the file at all. So right, I remember all those stories. I can relate to that, John. The difficulty is isolating which record or which layout is corrupted. 
Now, it's much more difficult with a re- with a record because you could have thousands and thousands of records and just one record is corrupted and causes problems. And the only way really to avoid, to you know, is to re- delete that and, you know, recreate it, recreate the data, print it out, print a copy out and, or export the fields and just re-import them into a new record. But isolating that is very difficult and sometimes almost impossible. Yeah, sometimes in the cases that have been brought to me, people have been so used to it, they were they knew where that record was and say, it's right, it's right after this one. If I do a find this way and then get to this record, it'll be the next one. So they were able to locate it, which was good. But yeah, that's, there, are, there are some difficulties. It's just, there's, I guess my point is that there's not one solution to a corrupt file. Certainly, it's not recovering the file and continuing to use it, but uh, you know it's usually going to a backup and importing the recovered file into that. But sometimes you can fix files in this way. But I haven't seen a, a, a corrupt record in at least a decade. I, I can't remember last time I saw one. I saw one recently, John. So they do exist. They do exist, right? <laughs> it's kind of like the Sasquatch, right? Absolutely, and we couldn't figure out what it was, and I just said, look. I don't know, but I think this record is corrupt. I'm going to export all the data from that one record and delete it and re-import the data into a new record and then, if necessary, resort the file. And it, that definitely does solve the problem because when you export the data, you don't take any of the corruption with you. So you've heard it here. Michael has seen Bigfoot. Right. <laughs> okay, I think that's time to move on to the next section here, right? <laughs> Our next section is the FileMaker DDR, which I rarely use. Uh, I rarely use it. And the reason is because it rarely helps me. And I'm not, it's not that I don't see the point. I love the whole cross-referencing, right? But getting through this document this that's opened up in your web browser and trying to find exactly what you're looking for, it's not easy. And sometimes it's just easier to figure out where the stuff is being used by just looking and knowing your solution rather than going. But the, the whole idea behind the DDR is that, you know, you can just save it real quick. You can open it up a web browser. It'll cross-reference to say you're looking for a field and you want to see where it's being used. Oh, it's being used on this layout here, here, and here. Um, you know, then you know you can't delete it. But if you find out that it's not used anywhere, then you're pretty comfortable about deleting it. That's what I usually use it for. But I can't say it's real easy to to get around and, and navigate, especially with those headers at the top. I mean, you, you scroll down a long solution and you forget which each column header is. And you have to scroll all the way back up and then scroll back down to, to, to remember. It's like I almost have to write them down on paper. Maybe it's just me getting old. I don't know. But it, it, it hasn't been the easiest uh, tool, although it does do the cross-referencing for you. It does. It's just hard to navigate around in it. I don't know what your guys' experience is. Tell me about it. Well, I I totally agree with you. I think the DDR in itself is not useless, but not very useful. But you have to have a tool like Base Elements or FM Perception or Inspector to be able to analyze that and put it in a a form that we can all use it and, and work with it. And a digestible a, form, right? Digestible form. The DDR is like it's like a stream of consciousness and you can't make sense of it because you need to have that stream put into a form that we can all understand. Yeah, the DDR is kind of like a buffet 
and something like base elements or inspector pro or fm perception is more like having a four course meal at at a fancy restaurant where they bring it to you and it's easy to do you know everything's clear for you so for god's sake don't use that analogy john they'll just want to charge more money for them right <laughs> so so you've heard the downs you have any downsides that we haven't mentioned mark about the ddr no i i agree with you guys it's it's a point of reference i don't use it much uh, i don't think i've used it actually in many years um so it, it's a nice quick reference for someone who doesn't have a developer tool and it's probably better than nothing but um if you already have a developer tool that you know and like then that this looks like child's play by comparison this concludes part one of the developer tools podcast with john mark osborne michael rashad and our special guest mark la rochelle Part two will be released on the 20th of May and covers developer tools that are available from other sources outside of FileMaker. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.